In chapter 4, the events of chapter 4 that we're going to look at today, are, they're closely linked to the events of chapter 3 from last week. Uh, so in case you were napping or weren't here or whatever reason you might, you might not be intensely familiar with chapter 3, quick, a quick recap. Is it, so in chapter 4, we're going to see the same characters. It's going to be the next day. And, and chapter 4 is going to be the consequences of what we saw happen in chapter 3. Now in, in chapter 3... We have our characters, Peter and John, and we've been with them for a little bit now since Peter preached at Pentecost. Peter and John are going to, they're heading into the temple. They're going to heal a man that was lame, uh, supposedly for 40 years, was lame for 40 years. And then Peter is going to preach the gospel to the crowd of Jewish worshipers who gathers around at this miracle. It obviously creates a crowd because everyone recognizes this guy that sits outside the gate and has done so for many, many years. Is like now he's walking, so it creates a crowd. Peter preaches to them very boldly, and uh, but this, but what Peter does is really interesting, right? So he he says he says yeah, this healing is really cool, right? He says um, he he says but don't don't marvel at this healing, right? He says the healing this healing is not a result of anything that 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 I have done. Peter says the healing is not a result of anything John has done. This is as a result of Jesus's power. He's like. The God of your fathers, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified his servant Jesus, and it's through his name that we have done this healing. And, and he almost asked the question. He's like, he's like, so why are you standing amazed that God would do something like heal somebody? Is that not a small thing for God to do? If God is the God of the universe, if God is the God you believe him to be from the scriptures, is it not a small thing for him to be able to heal a man's legs? And so what he does, he redirects and he says, instead of marveling, instead of marveling at a healing, marvel at this. The true miracle is not that this man's legs were healed in Jesus' name, but that sinners can be forgiven and saved from hell in Jesus' name. He says, so don't marvel at this, marvel at, marvel at Jesus, the one who you rejected. You remember? He's kind of recalling their memory a little bit. It's like just, just a month ago, you rejected him. But now he has been raised from the dead, and by his power, this has been done. And so he calls them to repent and to believe. And so, so we, we flow from there. You, you can kind of see how that sets the scene. He's doing this in the temple, under the eyes of everyone around. And so in chapter 4, flowing from that, we're going to see uh, really four things, probably more things. You could, we could break it down, but four big ones that I saw. We're going to see the first persecution of the church, which, which ends pretty well, honestly. The second, second thing we're going to see is a, is a bold proclamation of the gospel, which we've seen a couple times now. The third thing we're going to see, a filling with the Holy Spirit, again, not new. The fourth thing we're going to see, though, and this is where we're going to focus, we're going to land today, is this mind-blowing response from the church to opposition to the gospel of Jesus. We're going to see them respond in an incredible way to opposition and persecution from the powers that be. So we're going to talk about boldness today. And, and to illustrate that, uh, I, I, told, I told Sammy this story last night, and I got a, I got a giggle out of her, which, which can be rare at some times. You can imagine living with me, like, yeah, you, you get it. So prayers for Sammy are, are appreciated, right? I, I told her the story last night. I got a giggle, so hopefully, hopefully you guys will, will understand it in the way that I mean it. Peter Cartwright, he was an itinerant preacher uh, in Illinois at the time of this story, but he was originally from Tennessee, and this gentleman was obliged to leave Tennessee because of his opposition to slavery. He was a very outspoken guy. He preached from the pulpit what God's word said. And as we all know, that can rub people the wrong way. 
as Peter Cartwright is preaching on this circuit, he's at a church one morning, a, a gentleman from the church comes up to him and says, just want to let you know that President Andrew Jackson is in attendance today. And as if to kind of let him say, oh, maybe you should just, just you know, just hedge your bets a little bit. Just guard, guard yourself a little bit. Maybe, maybe, don't, maybe don't go all the way. This, you know, just kind of tone it down some. So Peter Cartwright obviously takes that information in. He steps up to the pulpit, and he says, I have been informed that President Andrew Jackson is in attendance today. And I just want to say that if President Andrew Jackson does not repent, he will go to hell. <laughs> the truth of the gospel. So he leads with that, right? And history tells us that the, the president took this in good humor and was complimentary of the man's boldness. But may, may that be true of us, right? So th- th- I, I, I tell that story to say, thank God for faithful men and women all over the world throughout history and today who are willing to stand in the gap to look persecutors and those who would suppress the truth in the face and say, no, I can only speak of what I have seen and heard, and I must obey my God. And may, may we be counted among those people. And, and, and that's what we're going to dig into in our text today. So, so what I want to do is I want to read it again. I think God's word deserves the opportunity to be able to stand on its own. It doesn't need me talking over it the whole time. So I'm going to read the whole, read the whole thing to us one more time. And, and I want you to just pick up on, on these things, um, on, on a few things. Just, just highlight some things in your mind. Then I'm going to give you kind of the roadmap for how we're going to break it apart. And we're going to talk through it. Starting in chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking, they, that's Peter and John, as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, is the question they asked, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, that they had nothing to say in opposition... When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone of this name. So they called them and charged them to speak, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, 
whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, Victor already read for us verses 23 through 31. And we're going to read them again later, but I want to stop here for a moment. I want to, I want to kind of break down how we're, going, how we're going to attack all of this text here. As you can see, it's very rich. There's a lot in here. So what we're going to do is, is we're, going to, we're going to look at, and we're, going to, we're just going to read through and discuss verses 1 through, uh, through 22. And then we're going to look at 23 through 31, and we're going to just make some commentary, kind of tie the story together. And then we're going to look at the text in this. So if, so if you're taking notes, if you want to get yourself a little outline, this is where it comes in. At the end of all that, we're going to look at what this scripture presents to us, which is really two competing perspectives. Okay, and we're going to make it instructional for us. Okay, it's a narrative, so there's not, there's not a lot of commands in here. It's, we're going to make it instructional for us. So these two competing perspectives, the first perspective is one to caution you. Okay, so the first perspective is one to caution you. And that is the perspective of the, the elders, the scribes, and the high priestly family. Okay? It's, and it's going to caution you to flee the false piety that they demonstrate for us. The second perspective is one to challenge you. So one to, cha- one to caution you and one to challenge you. All right? And that, that second one is from the perspective of the church, of Peter and John and the church. And that challenge is going to be to embrace the calling that Christ has put on his disciples to be bold. The calling that Christ has put on his disciples to be bold. And there's three aspects of that boldness. That this boldness is yours in Christ Jesus. That is, it is supplied to you by the Holy Spirit. And that it proceeds from faithfulness. Okay, so that's the outline we're going to be working with at the very end. But for now, I want us to dive into this text. Kind of break it down and, and begin to understand what is going on here. So verses 1 through 4, I'm going to read them to you again. And as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, note that, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, here's the thing, resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Praise God for that last line. Praise God that that the the result of what happened in verses 1 through 3 is not the church fleeing, not people fleeing, but there that thousands more people. And it just notes the men here. Notice that, that the number of men came to about 5,000. So by extension, it, it's much more than that if we count families. But praise God that despite the preacher, Peter, and his, and his cohort, John, and even the man that they healed, because you've already seen that he was standing there with them at the trial. So why'd they arrest that guy? I don't know. Despite him being arrested and despite the heavy hand of the temple rulers, that the truth of the gospel could not be squashed. You couldn't stop the Holy Spirit when you stopped the messenger, right? God continues to work. And, and it just proves that, that what happens here, that what happens as a, as a result of this preaching is, or any preaching is not, is not Peter's eloquent speaking. It's not my eloquent speaking. We know that. But it's a testament to the power of the gospel, that this is the saving, the saving truth, the saving word of God, that it goes out and it goes forth with power regardless of who is speaking it and how well they speak it. That's an encouragement to us. 
But what we see from the temple guards, so if we go back to the beginning, we see the temple guards, they, they descend on this joyous scene that we've just had. They descend on this scene with a heavy hand, um, and, and, and what they do is, is, is they're mad, right? It says they're greatly annoyed, and, and I did a little study on that word, a good way to think greatly annoyed, like furious, like indignant. I'm thinking like the, it's, it's like 10.30, and it's about the seventh time that my children have gotten out of bed. Like, just stay in there. I'll do anything. Just stay, like, that kind of, that kind of just, like, they're just so, they're so furious, right? So they're, they're so mad that they come down with this, with this heavy hand on these guys. They're greatly annoyed. And what they do is they, they throw these goofballs in jail for the night. And, the, and there's purposes. There's, there's two purposes in this, really. The, the court would only meet in the morning. So this, this happened in the afternoon. We, we know that they were there at the ninth hour when this all happened. So it's probably after that. So they spend the night in the slammer. And, and, and so they got to wait till the morning for their trial, right? The second thing, I think, though, is that the, the leaders, not only were they, were, was, it, was it inconvenient to meet then, but they're hoping that these guys are going to sweat it overnight. They're just going to be, like, sitting in their jail cell, worried about this meeting that they have with the, with the, the big, the grand poopahs of, of the temple. They're going to be worried about it all night. They're going to be sitting there just thinking, like, Oh, man, we really messed up. And they're hoping that this pressure, when they show up the next morning for the trial, would make these guys just cave, just like that. But what we're going to see is that that's not the case. And that, in fact, far from Peter and John dreading a meeting with the leaders, the leaders are going to regret ever arresting these Jesus followers. And I I just want to just pause here for just a second for a quick application. So, So we see what what boldly preaching the gospel has cost Peter and John so far, right? They were arrested for boldly preaching the gospel, twice now. So it's probably been a buildup, but they were, they were arrested for boldly preaching the gospel. And, and I think of this question, this kind of theoretical question that comes up with, with missionaries, people in the mission field, and maybe you've pondered it yourself, but like, would I die for my faith? Like if I was forced to make the decision to name the name of Jesus and die or, or deny and live, what would I do? That's a fine question. It's fine to ponder it, but I, but I think the real question that we need to ask ourselves is what would it actually cost you to be bold with the gospel where you are right now in America, in Franklin County, just at your job or at home or in your neighborhood? What would it actually cost you in terms of frustration or, uh, or money or, or time in jail if you were just bold with a family member or with a coworker or with a neighbor or with someone next to you on an airplane? And think of how small the cost that we would pay to be bold with the gospel here compared to, say, j- today as well in a country like Malaysia or China. Because the cost is low. I mean, what is the cost? It, it's, a, it's a funny look at the checkout line at Food Lion. You know, it's my neighbor didn't talk to me for a week because I, I was really bold for the gospel. Like, if these are our obstacles, what does that say about our commitment and our understanding of the importance of the gospel and the weight that it has to save lives. And we need to just, just wrestle with that. I've been wrestling with it all week. I wrestle with it a lot because I'm constantly challenged by my lack of boldness for the gospel. And I would consider myself to be a person that's pretty bold for the gospel. But there's still moments where it's like, oh, I, just, I, I just didn't have the nerve to do it because I was, what was I worried about? I was worried about a funny look or maybe someone says something negative about me. Like, that's, that's, those are the highest stakes for me. Let's continue to verses 5 through 7. 
It says, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Let's just pause here. These two verses. This is really important. I just want to pause and look uh, in the text at, at who, who are these people that have arrested Peter and John? What's going on? So, so it, it lists for us um, it, it lists for us rulers, elders, scribes, and, and I just I think the scene here we can kind of amalgamate who it's going to be. And, and there's really three categories here. Um, there's Sadducees, Pharisees, and then the high priests or the high priestly family. Now, two of those, the high priests and the Pharisees, we've we've had a lot of run-ins with the go- in the gospel so far. But the Sadducees have not played such such a, a key role, which is weird because they're actually going to be in the in terms of the the, the religious elite. They're going to be in the majority at this time in, in Israel. And the Sadducees, they were they were part of the religious elite. They would have opposed Jesus for actually mostly political reasons, um, because they were closely aligned with the Romans. So the Sadducees were kind of like, like they were kind of like the teacher's pet amongst the the Jewish elites. Like they were just the ones that were always kind of sucking up to the Roman rulers, and they were just kind of doing whatever they needed to do to kind of stay in good with them. And Jesus and Jesus' followers just represent a disruption to the status quo. Okay, and not only that, but they have two theological distinctives that they would have believed that only the first five books of the gospel were, were God's word and that there was no resurrection. So you can see how what, G, what, John, what John and Peter are preaching flies right in their face. Then there's the Pharisees, right? We've run into them. They, they, have, they oppose Jesus for theological reasons. I say theological. We'll get into that in a second. The, they believe that the law makes a person righteous, right? And, so, and, and not only that, but that the Messiah was not one who was going to come and suffer, Right? So, so for theological reasons, they think that this is, all, this is all bogus. right? And then there's the high priest who are, again, these are political opponents of Jesus. Jesus' the gospel message threatens their, their status quo, the power that they have at hand. And not only that, but when we look at these names, Annas and, Annas and Caiaphas, these shouldn't be new names to us, right? The, both of these guys were present at the trial of Jesus. Okay, so, but here's the funny thing, and, and we don't really get into this when we're preaching through the gospel because, you know, we, we just assume these guys are bad, these guys are bad, but this is an opportunity to kind of look at their character. Annas and Caiaphas and the whole high priestly family, it's a really weird dynamic because they fancy themselves to be super powerful, right, like the, like the, the law of the land. But in, in reality, their power is fake because who is the law of the land? What's the ruling party over all of Israel? Well, it's Rome, Right? Israel is not sovereign at this point. It's under Roman control. And so everything that this high priestly family is doing to stay in power, including this, is, is all gamesmanship to just retain power that, that was given to them. Right? So, so Annas and Caiaphas and the whole high priestly family listed here, they're, they're, not even, they're not even real high priests. The Romans picked them because they were the ones that they could get along with. They're not Levites. They're not of the high priest. They don't, they don't qualify in any way except that the Romans like them. And so all this to say that their power is it's just fake. And, and they're, they, they hide behind this, this, false, this false piety. Um, but, but here's the thing. They're starting to get worried because Annas and Caiaphas were there when Jesus was taken to trial. They've seen Jesus. They were there. They, they were the ones that condemned him. Caiaphas was the one that said, well, better this one guy dies and all of Israel perish. Right? That was Caiaphas. So at this point, they have to start getting worried because they're thinking, if, if we don't get this under control, this Jesus thing, it's, it's really going to come crashing down on us. And here's the thing. So I want to point out 
what they, the question they asked. Did you guys notice the question they asked in verse 7? It says, by what power or what name did you do this? Well, this is a tricky question, right? Because they asked Jesus kind of the same questions, right? Like, well, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weaselly little question to try and get them to admit to something that they can execute them for, okay? It's a trap because if, if they name, if Peter and John answer anything other than Jehovah, right? If they say Jesus, they're going to die. And they know Peter and John know that. And what they're doing is they're betting on their combined clout and, and fake authority that we've established to, to make these guys capitulate to their demands, to intimidate them to the point to where they will say, I, it's, I don't even, I don't even, never even seen this guy. No big deal. Well, we won't talk about Jesus anymore. That's what they're hoping will happen. But that's not what happens. Let's go to verses 8 through 12 and we'll see Peter's response. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the peoples and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So as Peter responds here, he's, he's, it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, which, which we'll address. This is separate from like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as salvation. This is something separate. We're going to talk about that. But what I, want to, what I want to remember is that Peter is responding to their question, in whose name did you do this? All right, and so, and so Peter does four really interesting things here that, that I want to point out. Number one, he calls out the hypocrisy of these guys. So he immediately calls out the sham of a trial. Right? This, this is a joke, guys. He says, he says, are we here to talk about who healed this guy's legs? Because in whose, in whose world is that a problem, that this guy couldn't walk and now he can walk? So, so he's calling out the hypocrisy of this whole thing. Number two, he's calling out Jesus' name. Peter doesn't just tell them Jesus, right? Jesus is actually a common name in this day. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. I want to make sure you know who I'm talking about, guys. You know, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he goes on. You know, the one that you killed, right? The one who God raised. Yeah, that Jesus. That's the one that I'm talking He wants to make sure that they know. He's so bold here. And then verse three, and, and, and number three, he says, call, he calls out the sins of the leaders. This is where he calls them out for being the murderers that they are. And number four, he declares Jesus as king unmistakably. And I think all these elements are healthy ways that we can ourselves think about how we are presenting the gospel to other people, to one another, to ourselves, to our children. We're making it explicit what this gospel is, who it's about, and what it means. So he declares Jesus king unmistakably. Speaking to the leaders of the temple, he quotes, he quotes the, the cornerstone passage, Psalm 118, 22. And he's basically telling them, he's like, guys, you have laid the foundation of your religion on the wrong bedrock. You've laid it on your own authority. The cornerstone, the cornerstone, and, and we've probably taught this before, the cornerstone is the stone by which all the rest of the stone in the corners and the measurements of the building are taken. It's the one most important stone because it determines how everything else comes out. So in the same manner, there is nothing in heaven or on earth that will not be subjected to the standard of Christ. That is why this gospel is so important, and that's why making the gospel unmistakable and clear, especially to those who would oppose it, is so important. It's by Jesus' name alone that we stand and fall. There is no other name by which we can be saved. That's what, that's what Peter declares. There's no, there's no 
Allah, there's no Muhammad, there's no Buddha, there's no good behavior, there's no moralism, there's no legalism, there is nothing. There is nothing out there but Jesus for us to stand on if we wish to approach a holy and righteous God. There is no other name, there is no other one, there is no other king who has conquered death. And so if we have hopes of heaven, if we have hopes of a right relationship with God, if we have hopes of forgiveness of sin, it is through Jesus or it is not at all. And that is what Peter is making abundantly clear. And, so, and that, that's my challenge to us, for just from this little application here in this passage, is to cling to Christ. If you are clinging to anything but Jesus, if you are trying to add or take away anything from the gospel to make it easier to believe or harder to believe, you are doing a disservice to the life-giving truth that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected for your sins. There is nothing we can add to the law to make it more perfect. There's nothing we can add to Jesus to make him more perfect. And there's nothing that we can take away from him that will, that will leave him acceptable. It is Jesus as he is or nothing. So cling to him. He is the foundation. He is the bedrock. He is the cornerstone that we must build our lives on because he is the cornerstone that the whole universe is founded on. There is nothing in all of creation that will not pass through the, the sifter of, of Jesus. It will all be judged by him in the end. And so we must cling to him if we are to be with him in that final day. Let's look at verses 13 through 22. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But, seeking, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that we may spread no, that, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to warn them to speak no more to anyone in His name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered in this way: Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them. They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. These men and this council, the Pharisees, high priests, Sadducees, they are so used to being capitulated to, to being appeased for their power and their clout to carry so much weight that people just fold like a lawn chair when they're confronted by them, that they are stunned that these common, uneducated men would approach them boldly with the gospel truth that Jesus is alive and that he alone forgives sins. Even, even Caiaphas, even the witty one at Jesus' trial, is silent. And why are they silent? So the question, the question I asked myself as I was reading this, why? Why are they so stunned at that? Well, it says it here. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What a terrifying moment to realize your worst fears from the perspective of these, of these religious lead, leaders. That not only were the rumors of Jesus being alive proving to be true, but here where one had stood a month ago, Jesus, now there are two who are just as bold, proclaiming the same gospel. What they're thinking is that these Jesus followers might be worse than Jesus. They're getting worried. And so here's a quick application from this for us. When it says they had been with, they recognize that they had been with Jesus, can that be said of us, church family? 
as individuals, as, as a body of believers, that from interacting and conversing with us, people would know that we're disciples of Christ. This is a question that has laid heavy on me this week. Like, How would someone know by interacting with me that I'm a disciple of Christ? What is the, pre- the prevailing sentiment that people have about me when they're around me? Because I, I want it to be this. I want it to be, and they recognize that he, that they had been with, that he had been with Jesus. And so I challenge us, I challenge you all to reflect this week, whether on your own or in your growth group, do you have the aroma of Christ? What, what does that look like to have the aroma of Christ? What does that look like for you in your workplace, in your, in your neighborhood, in your home? Have you been so near to Jesus lately that it is evident to others? I want us to wrestle with that question. I can't answer it for you. I, I, I'm trying to answer it for myself. If we look at verse 16, we see that they, the leaders are hatching a plan to handle the situation. And, and what's most disturbing about their plan is this, that they have zero regard for the religious conviction of the whole thing, right? We see that, that their only consideration, the only thing that concerns them is the political, purely political aspect of what this means for them. There, there's no religious or theological, theological conviction because their plan is what? Their plan is, well, we're going to yell at them and maybe they'll stop. Like, they're still clinging to this fake authority that they think they have. I mean, how asinine do these guys have to be that they're so convinced that their place of power will scare the Jesus out of these two and everybody else? It's not going to happen. Verses 19 and 20, Peter and John respond, and they say, Peter and John answered, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And the disciples are just saying simply this, that clearly you have put yourself, you leaders have put yourself in the position of God in your own mind. Clearly you are the, the authority of the land and God is not a part of this. But what we've got to do is obey the God that you claim to serve and we can only obey what we have seen and heard. He says, but you do you. Y'all, y'all do whatever you got to do. That's what he says to them. In verses 23 through 31, I just want to look at quickly before we, we dive into a few applications for us. 23 through 31, I want, I want to read it to us one more time. And again, I, we're reading so much of this text because I think the narrative, God's word, like I said, it, it deserves to stand on its own. Verse 23 says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, so this is, this is their prayer. The rest of this is, is a prayer except for verse 31. And they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of, the, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Listen to this. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's a beautiful prayer. 
It's a, it's a prayer that, it's, it's a celebration, and it's a prayer. So, but here's the thing, and this is kind of what, what you would expect, like if, if we weren't reading this story, if we didn't have a lot of context, what we would expect this moment to be, it would be, we would expect it to be a celebration that Peter and John just got off with a tongue lashing, and the prayer would be that this doesn't happen anymore. But what is the prayer? Well, the prayer, the, the celebration is that they are excited to have been bold amidst persecution. And the prayer is that they would continue to be bold, knowing that more persecution is going to come. And we look at verses 27 and 28 one more time. It says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Their prayer is rooted in the faith that God is sovereign and faithful and moving all things for the good of those who love him. Praise God. May that be true of us. In verse 31, God shakes the ground in affirmation of this, of this holy and vertical prayer. And he fills them with boldness. He fills them through the Holy Spirit with boldness. And they go out. And church, we are sitting here today because they were obedient. Because they were filled with boldness and went out into a broken world and proclaimed the gospel unapologetically. We are here. What a legacy that we have to carry on. But the question is, will we carry it on? Will we be bold? Because as we've seen, the stakes that we, that we paid to share the gospel, to spread the gospel, to be bold for the gospel where we are today, are so, so low compared to what the church was facing. Are, are we not called to the same level of boldness? Are we not called to the same level of obedience? We must consider these things. So in the time that we have left, I'm going to try and do this in 10 minutes. I'm going to go through this outline that I, that I gave you. The two perspectives, one to caution you and one to challenge you, and then, and then what it looks like to be bold. So keep, keep your scriptures open because we're going to be flying back to them. But what we see here is that, that there's, there's two perspectives. The first one is one to caution you, that we would flee the false piety of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, they, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, this whole religious elite, they, they, really have three, they really have three falsities that I want to look at. The first one is they have a false authority, that's based on deception. They have a false religion created by man, and they have a false righteousness based on the law. So the false authority based on deception, we, we've talked about this for a second, that Annas is called the high priest. You, you notice, notice back in the text it says, Annas the high priest. Look back in history, Annas is actually not the high priest. It's Caiaphas, right? And, and there's a sense in which they could have been using the term Annas the high priest as, a, as like, like, like we call former presidents, like, like the former president Ronald Reagan, right? He's, he's, he'll always be the president, right? There's a little bit of that. The guy is still, pre- like, like our former presidents aren't still sitting in the White House, right? But that's what's going on here, right? He's still wielding authority because he can't let go of it because he's addicted to the power. Annas was, was the high priest before Caiaphas, but he's still, he clearly still presides in authority. And when in reality, we talk about this as well, this authority is fake, who, who gave this authority? It was the Romans. This isn't real high priestly authority. This is all a show. This is all a political show. There's no real power, but the temptation to wield what power they have viciously was just too great. Their false authority is based on deception. 
Their false religion was created by man. So if we examine the whole premise of the trial and the threats that they're making towards Peter and John, we see that there's no hint of theological conviction, and we hinted at this already. There's no hint of theological conviction behind the outrage that the council seems to feel towards Peter and John. There's none. Because if these leaders were really worried about upholding some sort of theological, scriptural conviction, then they don't have any course to go but to condemn these guys, right? So they, they have two things. They either have to admit that Peter and John are right, that the sign accomp- that, that the healing accompanied with the teaching is true, this is new revelation, this is, this is Jesus, Jesus is the way, or they have to kill these guys because they are clearly blasphemers. But instead they take the third route and they do nothing which reveals to us that there, there's no real conviction that this is all a show, it's all a political show that gives them power and respect and money and it just allows them to, to keep the status quo the way they want it. It's a false religion created by man. It's, it's not real theological conviction of any kind. And finally, there's, there's a false righteousness based on the law. So we see how these leaders tried to trap Peter and John in the exact same way that they trapped Jesus. Right? What they, they ask him, they ask them, by what power or what name did you do this? It's, it's the same way. They, they try and trap Peter and John the same way they tried to trap Jesus in this, in this blasphemy category. Why do they do that? Well, because history has proven that this is a really, really good way to execute your political adversaries. So if, if they can somehow trick you into saying something that they could misconstrue as blasphemy, then they can have you murdered. They're using this law as a weapon. The law for them is not something to be obeyed or honored by God. It is a means of abuse and disrespect to their fellow humans. The wall, the law is, is a toy to these men, and, and they, have, they have weaponized it. They've weaponized the law to keep themselves in power and everyone else under their burden. I, I think I want, I want to flip back to Matthew 23. I just want to read you a second. You don't, you don't have to flip there with me. You can if you want to. Matthew 23 uh, verses 1 through 4, Jesus, Jesus talks about this. It, it's, it's perfect. And then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor and feasts and the best seats at the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. That's Jesus' diagnosis of what's going on, and it's playing itself out here. And here's the caution for us in all this. This is the, the big picture caution to every one of us in this room, whether you consider yourself to be in Christ or not, that any time there is an established religious order, like in America where religion is accepted of almost any kind. And, and for the most part, Christianity is widely accepted, especially in the South, especially in a community like ours. Anytime there's an established religious order and the society around it is submissive to it, it will be subject to the same temptations as these Pharisees. We are tempted to make our religious freedom and, and love and law and the word of God a weapon against our fellow man and even against our fellow family members within the body of Christ. It's easy because it's acceptable, right? This is the law, and I can wield it however I want. I'm telling you today that you do not have the freedom to do that, 
that above all, the scriptures command us to love and that we must be cautioned by the example we have from these very religious men before us today to flee the temptation to wield God's word in an unholy manner, that we must love and respect and care and be Christ to one another. There's one challenge in this too. The, the perspective of the, of the early church is a challenge to us. So in, in the final minutes here, I just want to walk us through this. That we need to embrace the calling that Christ has put on his disciples to be bold. The, the, the challenge to us that we see from the church here is to embrace the calling Christ has put on his people to be bold. I want to read Matthew 10, uh, verses 16 through 20 for you. I should have just kept my finger there. Matthew 10, verses 16 through 20. And you can turn there with me if you like. And it says this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father who is speaking through you. Peter is displaying here in front of these leaders what, what Jesus foresaw in Matthew 10. And that's a beautiful fulfillment of Scripture so close to when it was spoken. What Jesus promised his people, what, what he promises in Matthew 10, and what we see bearing itself out in our text this morning, is that no matter where we find ourselves in life, whether before a court ready to execute us for following Christ or just talking to an obstinate atheistic neighbor, that he will supply us with everything we need to be a bold witness for his kingdom. He has promised to provide that to us. And so three points on boldness, and then we're done. Number one, that the boldness that we see in our text today from Peter and John and then from the church in their prayer is yours in Christ Jesus. It has been delivered to you. That this boldness is for you to have and to use for the sake of God's kingdom. It is not limited to a certain group of people that we call evangelists or preachers or whatever. It's for all of us. It's given to you to use this boldness. What Peter is doing is not just for Peter and the apostles. It's for each believer. And when we look at the prayer that we see in 23 to 31, we see the whole church is praying this. It's not just for Peter and John to continue to be bold. It's for all of us to continue to be bold. The whole church is seeking to be a bold example of the gospel. Go back to Matthew 10, 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Jesus has defeated death. He literally defeated death and won for us an eternal kingdom that cannot perish. That is our hope. Something that that no one can take away from us. He put all the cards in our favor, so we have nothing to lose and everything to gain through being bold. Unashamed, bold witnesses to the gospel. Boldness is ours, family. It's, It's ours. We can have it. Jesus wants it for us, so we need to embrace that Jesus has called us to do a hard thing, being bold for the gospel, no matter where we are. It can be difficult. We don't have to just be in a closed country. It can be difficult here, but Jesus has called us to do the hard thing, and he will supply everything that we need to accomplish it in that hour. 
So this is a test of trust. Will I be bold? Matthew 28, 19. And he says, he gives the great commission to go, therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us always. Second point, the boldness is supplied by the Holy Spirit. We already noted that the, the instance, that this instance of, of the Holy Spirit filling Peter is separate from, from the filling, from, from the indwelling spirit that we see at Pentecost, right? The Peter is not being indwelt by, by the Spirit once more. He's not being saved once more. We, we, the scriptures teach and we believe that the indwelling spirit is, is a once and forever thing and, and it's a seal and a promise to us from God to preserve us, his saints, until the end. And that this filling that Peter is experiencing that we see throughout Acts is something in addition, right? It's something that is something in addition to the Spirit just living within. I think we look back to verse, to verse 13, and we see where it says, and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. This is the only example I can think of, and I actually used it on, on Awana to explain the Holy Spirit to, to the kids. You take a glass and you fill it with water, right? Just water. And then you take oil, uh, and, and you begin to pour it, you pour it into that glass, right? And, and that heavy oil begins to push, the, the more oil you pour, pour in, the water just begins to get pushed out the top. So I, I picture that I picture that when we're talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, that, that the Spirit resides within us as a seal and a promise of our salvation, but that when we walk closely with Jesus, he begins to empty out what used to be there, right? He begins to empty us of ourselves and fill us with the image of Christ. We're being formed in the image of Christ as he pushes out the flesh and, 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 the, and the former man, the former woman, and he indwells us with the Spirit. He fills us up in this way. And occasionally he fills us so fully that it's, that it's very clearly just Jesus doing his work through you. And that's what's happening here. So consider Peter's history in the last month. Think about where Peter was the night of Jesus' crucifixion or the night of Jesus' trial. Peter's going through his own trial now. Peter goes from cowering before a slave girl. Remember when Peter's, when they're gathered around, they're gathered around the fire and Peter's kind of watching at a distance what's going on with Jesus. And a slave girl says, hey, weren't you, weren't you one of those Gentiles? And in front of a, a slave girl who has no authority, who has no power to do anything to him, Peter cowers and he falls back. And he says, I never even knew him. But now today, before the men who killed Jesus, he boldly proclaims the gospel and that Jesus is the only way of salvation. There can be no explanation for that except for the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is ours to have. If you have the Holy Spirit, if he is indwelt inside of you, he is yours. And he will fill you with what you need in that moment to be bold. Final point, verses 27 through 28. The prayer of the saints after Peter and John, are for, it's remarkable, it's beautiful, it's, it's rooted in, in the unshakable truth that God is sovereign over all things, that persecution, hardships, and difficulty, these, these things are small, that all of reality is in God's perfect hands, the same hands that bled for you and for me, he holds on to us with. So I beg you, church, to pray for boldness because he's delivered it to you. He's bought it for you. And that our faith in him is what it proceeds from. But here's the thing about praying for boldness. So I encourage you to pray for boldness. But this is what praying for boldness or wanting to be bold requires, right? It really requires two ingredients. It requires the Holy Spirit supplied boldness 
which God has promised us, but it also requires us being ready to act. If you're going to pray for boldness, you also need to make a plan to be bold. So don't sit on, our, on your couch praying to be bold with your neighbor and never walk outside. Never, never, never pick up the phone to call that family member. Never walk over to that co-worker's desk. It requires action. And church, that's just this last exhortation before we're done. That this gospel message, that we can be bold with it because we need to be bold with it. This, this gospel message needs to be proclaimed to the world. This is the, the only truth of any of the truths that can be unequivocally, unapologetically proclaimed to the whole world. Because the world needs bold messengers. They need bold messengers for the gospel. They need people to go to Uganda, to go to Malaysia, to go to China, to go to all these places around the world where the gospel is not present. They need you to walk over. The gospel needs you to walk over to your neighbor's house and proclaim the gospel to them. And not only that, but the church needs you to proclaim the gospel. We need the gospel within these walls, right? Amongst ourselves. We need to to commit to discipling one another, right? Find someone younger in the faith than you and disciple them. Be bold for the gospel. Be firm in your insistence that everything that we do here is founded on God's word. Don't compromise on that. There's no need. Don't ever let anybody, no matter who's standing here, compromise on that truth. Rebuke sin in one another. Care for one another enough to rebuke sin, to call out sin for what it is in love, to follow the commands of Matthew 18, and to walk with your brother and sister in love through sin so that we can be on the other side of sin in righteousness and give God all the glory. Boldness is ours because of the gospel, church family. It's ours. All we have to do is put our faith in the gospel, that it is the good news that we say it is, and act on it. Let me pray for us. God, you're good. There's no other explanation than you are perfect and holy and good, that you would come and save a people who hated you and fled from you and denied your truth and suppressed your truth. God, you are good, and you came all the same. And so we cling to the truth of the gospel, Lord, and we pray for boldness. We pray that we would have the heart and mind of the disciples in our text today to be bold amidst persecution, amidst difficulty, amidst trial, that we would be bold for the gospel, that we would believe boldly, even when things aren't going our way, God, even when, even when the world is telling us that we have failed, that you are still good. That is boldness. And we're going to proclaim it to a lost world. Where we ask that you make this truth sit heavy on our hearts, that we would wrestle with it, and that we would love you and proclaim you in all the things that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.